Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, May the 3rd, 2023. Almost exactly 60 years ago, on May the 4th, 20, uh, on May the 4th, excuse me, 1963, the New York Times published an appalling photograph of a police officer in Birmingham, Alabama, with a dog and a young uh, African-American male. It was one of those photos in some ways that changed the world and certainly triggered much of the activity in Birmingham, the Civil Rights Initiative during the 1960s and 1963. Uh, my guest today, Paul Kicks, was looking at that photo, that 60-year-old photo, in the context of another photo from May, this one from 2020, those infamous photos of George Floyd being murdered on, on the streets of uh, Mi uh, Minneapolis. And it occurred to him that there was some sort of connection. Uh, Paul Kicks has a new book out. It's called You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. Subtitled 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Paul is joining us. Paul, tell us about how these two photos, uh, in some ways rather similar, triggered this new book. The one from 1963, it was an image that I began to study and really obsess over uh, in a short time after our kids were born. I'm white, my wife is black, uh, our three kids identify as black. And in particular, after the boys were born, this would be around 2011, we have twin boys. I wanted to just reacquaint myself with the black canon uh, in American literature. And as a result of that, I began to read a lot of civil rights books. And that image, uh, that you described is one in which a 15-year-old boy named Walter Gadsden is basically being feasted upon by a German shepherd. And what is amazing about that image in, is that there is a sense of serenity about Gadsden. He knows in that moment that studying this for generations to come, almost as if there's a sense of posterity to it, just because of the starkness of the brutality of the attack against sort of the peacefulness upon his face. Time that I became sort of obsessed with that uh, in 2020, George Floyd died. The reason that was significant is because my wife, Sonia, grew up in inner city Houston. She grew up in a, a neighborhood over from George. Fifth Ward, George grew up in Third Ward. George was Sonia's age. When George died, uh, they were both 46. Who went to Yates High, which was the same high school that George went to. And all of that is a long way to say that the Sonia's connection made George's murder almost feel personal to us. CNN and watched George Floyd die. We also allowed our kids to watch it. And this was the first time that we had allowed them to see this sort of this sort of imagery of black men being killed by the police. And our twin boys who were then nine had a, a, lot, a lot of really hard questions about what that meant. Are all cops racist? Leading all the way down to, you know, am I inferior? Uh, um, is this gonna befall me? That's what it, 
it was a really tough time the latter half of 2020 for us because ultimately they would leave the room crying in tears when Jacob Blake was later shot by Kenosha, Wisconsin cops. Um, they said they keep trying to kill us. And so Sonny and I sort of returned to that image and what quickly became a book project for me also became a family project of sorts, something where I could try to tell the kids and Sonia could too about a way to sort of maintain hope, maintain courage, maintain resilience, maintain faith in themselves and their country at a time when they were despairing of it. And it also came at a time during the midst of the pandemic where I had sort of was in need of those things too. And the, the period that personified that was the 10 weeks in Birmingham in 1963 that I strongly believe changed everything about America. Before that, from 1863 to 1963, we had Jim Crow, 100 years of segregation. We have the Birmingham campaign and then America changes radically. After that, it's the voting, excuse me, it's a civil rights act, then the voting rights act, King's death in 68, and then what I think is a new life for his country, up to and including the fact that I could marry someone like Sonia in a former Jim Crow state like Texas, and we could raise our kids on a quiet street where no one harassed us for who we were. Everything came back to Birmingham, and that was the book that I wanted to write for the kids. In fact, the book is an open letter to the kids, and really to anybody, for how to lead a good and courageous and faithful life. And yet, in some ways, everything changed, uh, Paul, and in some ways, nothing changed. In some ways, uh, 57 years later, after the uh, publication of that photograph in the New York Times, we had similar photographs, even more graphic, even more disturbing, of a, a policeman murdering an innocent black man. America has not changed in some sense, America is indelibly changed by that spring. I don't know that violence will ever leave America. In fact, you could argue with school shootings happening, uh, various shootings happening on a daily, multiple daily, more than once a day, I should say, basis, that we will, we will ever rid ourselves of that level of brutality. But my hope with this book was to find a way to say uh, to myself, to my kids, to anybody who would care to read it, there is a path forward in life that is one of hope and courage. And it comes, and the reason you can have that sort of path in life is because of how hopeless, of how weak, and how, uh, how sort of those, these men of deep faith actually felt during that spring of 1963 because of all that they had to endure. Tell me a little bit about the Birmingham of 1963. I actually lived in Birmingham um, 10 or 15 years ago it's a very different sort of place uh in the 21st century than it was back in 1963 it was a deeply segregated city wasn't it in 1963 and this is what the the boycott was about segregated it was it was arguably the most racist most violent place in america which was saying something for the sort of jim crow south at that time you had a neighborhood that was known as Bombingham for all the bombs that went off. Um, you had a sub-neighborhood called Dynamite Hill, where predominantly African-American uh, uh, working class and professional class people resided. You had a Ku Klux Klan that castrated Black men. You had a Birmingham police department that raped Black women. Uh, Edward R. Murrow, before 
just before the Southern Christian Leadership Conference begins its campaign in Birmingham in uh, in April of 63, Edward R. Murrow reports from Birmingham and he says to his producer, I have never seen anything like this place since Nazi Germany. And of course, when most of us think of Birmingham in 1963, we think of Martin Luther King and his letter from Birmingham jail, which came out of this protest that was triggered in some ways by the photo in the Times. But your book focuses not just on King, but on three other men who you see as being critical. Uh, uh, Wyatt T. Walker, James Bevel, and, and Fred Shuttleworth. Tell, tell me a little bit about each of these men and, 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 and why they're so important and why the four of them together with MLK are so critical in changing America forever. The credit today and uh, he's sort of the face of the movement but the reality especially in 1963 and especially in Birmingham was that his deputies were often the ones leading the charge. Let's start with Wyatt Walker. Uh, before they would even consider going to Birmingham, they had to had a sort of plan for it. The SELC had known nothing but failure. Wyatt Walker was then the executive director of the Southern Christian. Uh, and just to jump in here, you say the SLC, uh, the SCLC, that's the Southern Christian Leadership yeah. Conference. So that's that's King's organization, the SCLC. And Wyatt Walker served as executive director of that. And it was really his plan that says, let us, instead of trying to go to places there where we might win a campaign because they'd actually lost and had nothing but abysmal failure in the seven years prior to Birmingham, let's go to a place that will be absolutely terrible, that will, that will inflict ultimate terror and violence upon us. Because if we go there, then perhaps we can get what we've always wanted, which is civil rights legislation. Their plan was to turn their bodies into suffering. They're into metaphors of the black experience itself, because if they could do that, then maybe Walter Cronkite's camera crews would come down. Maybe New York Times reporters would scribble on their notebooks. And as a result, maybe Jack and Bobby Kennedy and the America that they governed would at last agree to the thing that the whole of the FCLC wanted, which was civil rights legislation. Jack and Bobby had thus far been vehemently opposed to something like that. And it's his plan. It's his idea to go to Birmingham and this memo that he writes that ultimately is the reason they go there. Fred Shuttlesworth, the second character in this book, Fred is should today he should be as well known as King. That's just flat out. That's just the truth. He is, to me, the, the bravest American I've ever come across. Uh, he was a Birmingham pastor at a time when Birmingham was less a city than a site of domestic terror. And as a result of that, Fred was often the lone activist, the lone pastor prior to the SELC joining him in 1963, advocating for change on the streets of Birmingham. What did it cost him? Well, it cost him his marriage, cost, nearly cost him his life on multiple occasions. His home was bombed. Uh, he, uh, he, 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 he was stabbed. Uh, he was beaten nearly to death on multiple occasions. And every time he kept getting up and saying, I want equality. I want liberty. Uh, and again, I've, I've, it's, it's, I've never encountered anybody with Fred Shuttlesworth's bravery. And the last character, the, the last sort of central character of this book is James Bevel. We often think today of, of, and we often see images from the civil rights movement and then this sort of movement man attire, right? The conservative suits and whatnot. 
James Bevel was not like that. James Bevel was younger than all of the middle-aged uh, members of the SCLC. He was in his 20s. He wore overalls. He was an earthy man who nonetheless was sort of almost timeless in a sense. He spoke in biblical phrases. He spoke in phrases that sort of, uh, in some sense, chronicled um, and tried to capture the Old Testament prophets with whom he most identified. In fact, people in the movement called him the prophet because he would say things like, thus saith the Lord, saith James Bevel. So he was a very idiosyncratic man. What Bevel does is he basically convinces King and the rest to do what seemed incomprehensible. Because the adults weren't willing to protest because they might lose their jobs, he said, we should use children. And that idea so appalled King until he felt he had no idea, excuse me, he had no choice but to go along with Bevel. And that's where the Birmingham campaign really become something else than just a failed campaign. The previous campaigns of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference weren't as successful. What lessons uh, were relevant then and, and particularly now in terms of affecting change? Is They thought that you can't necessarily affect change going to the seats of government. This comes back to what Wyatt Walker tried to pass along. The best way to affect real change is to actually try to inflict some sort of economic damage to a community. And so they were, tr they were trying to stage a boycott of downtown Birmingham stores. They were uh, trying to stage uh, sit-ins at lunch counters, tried to go to the seat of government, and that had not worked. But what's fascinating about Birmingham is they tried all of these grand plans that they had for Birmingham in the first month of, of the campaign. And basically from there, everything became becomes a game of improvisation. Everything becomes a cat and mouse game. What can we do to perhaps incite Bull Connor, who was effectively, um, he was a public safety commissioner and effectively the man who ran Birmingham. What can we do to incite Bull Connor at a time when he's trying to not be incited by us? There was a psychological aspect to this between the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the powers that be in Birmingham. And behind all of it was the and a tremendous sense of danger and brutality that would that would be visited upon these nonviolent protesters, knowing that they were going to be perhaps lose their lives as a result of trying to protest in Birmingham. Paul, we all have images seared into our minds, our hearts. Um, one is associated with some of the racist marches um, and songs associated with the Charlottesville protest. How much did that affect this book? And uh, how, how much did some of those images remind you of Birmingham back in 1963? How much of them should remind us of Birmingham in 1963. Is if you if you go back to George Floyd, the young woman who took the 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 cell phone video of that, Darnella Fraser, she later told the Wall Street Journal that she took that, she captured those images because if she didn't do it, she didn't think that people would believe her about this was the way that George Floyd was treated. In the very same sense, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference wanted the Northern press to be down in Birmingham and to see what it was to see what was going to happen to these nonviolent black protesters because otherwise 
America, and in particular, Jack and Bobby Kennedy may not believe what that was actually like. In that sense, there are direct parallels. I would say the distinction here is that Martin Luther King Jr. and the SCLC very much wanted those sort of bloody and terrible images to make the nightly news. Because again, if they could make the nightly news, then perhaps they could at last affect change in America. They were willing to do whatever it took to try to break segregation in Birmingham. They thought they would either break segregation in Birmingham or they would the entire organization would be broken. In fact, that became a re refrain. We will break segregation or we will be broken by it in Birmingham. How much debate was there, uh, Paul, within the African-American community, particularly within Birmingham, on strategy? Of course, uh, the cliche now about the 60s is there was a, a strategic moral political division between MLK and Malcolm X in terms of how far you should go and in terms of the role of violence in resisting racism. Were the seeds of that in existence in Birmingham in 1963? Was there much debate within the African-American community about how to address this situation? There was, yeah. It's a, you know, it's it's almost as idiosyncratic as every person that lived there, but largely it could be grouped into a couple things in Birmingham. Uh, on the one side, and this is perhaps the, the biggest grouping is as follows. Did not like somebody that they quote, that they called a quote, interloper like King, somebody, and he and his acolytes coming from Atlanta to try to settle the problems of Birmingham. They, they were, black Birminghamians were sort of outraged at that. They saw it as sort of a patronizing position. Why is it that you know what's best for us? So there, there was a somewhat provincial divide. There was also something that needs to just be said out loud, which is like, it's a class divide. Birmingham was overwhelmingly, uh, who, it's black citizenry were over, overwhelmingly domestic workers majority of the SCLC's senior leadership were highly, highly educated people whose lives had not been like that. Martin Luther King talks repeatedly in, in his many works, and in fact, I, I cited many of them in this book, um, where he is almost feels guilty about the ease of his young life and what it meant for him to have a, a, a big car in the front yard and a piano in the living room and all the books he could ever want. When he had friends who suffered far more oppression and, and racism in, in, in their young lives than he did in his own. So there was a divide and a, and, a, and a sort of education divide too. And that went right through the heart of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Fred Shuttlesworth sort of embodied what uh, working and middle-class Birminghamians were like. And he felt ultimately almost duped by King uh, and his national campaign. And he worked closely with King in this. So what I'm trying to do in this book is show that not only were there divides between, as you were mentioning just a moment ago, the people from the peanut gallery like Malcolm X or Robert Kennedy and how, what he thought um, King should be doing. But within the SCLC, there were very big egos and there were very, frankly, diametrically opposed visions of how this campaign should be carried out and what it meant, again, along economic lines, along class lines, along uh, racial lines. And of course, there's the issue of gender. It goes without saying that the four heroes, the four central figures in your book are all male. Uh, not all 
the figures in the civil rights movement, of course, are male. Is there something coincidental about that, um, Paul? Or was this a movement, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and these 10 weeks in Birmingham that changed America? Was it mostly um, mostly changed by men, by African-American men? By African-American men, yes. Uh, however, within Birmingham in 1963, you had Dorothy Cotton, who served as, an, as a member of the executive uh, board of directors within the SELC. But overwhelmingly, over the SELC was run by men. Now, James Bevel, one of the central characters, his wife, Diane Nash, in her own way, becomes just a monumental figure of the civil rights movement. However, in Birmingham, she plays a somewhat diminished role. King's own wife, Coretta Scott King, she wrote how she wanted desperately to be with Martin during this campaign because there's numerous reasons, but at the forefront of them is, is the fact that she felt that she, she was a, an activist as well. And yet, at least in Birmingham, she was sidelined. The role of media is, of course, important. That's what ties the metaphor beginning, uh, the, the metaphor connecting the two photos, the, the May 4th, 1963 photo and the images of the Floyd murder. Had there been social, I know this is rather speculative, Paul, but had there been social media back in 1963, how different would these events have been? Social media. Walter Cronkite's evening broadcast. The, they all read the New York Times. From May, when Walter Gadsden is attacked, those later images of uh, other German shepherd attacks of kids who, getting the fire hose and their clothes more or less disintegrating, of Black people just being beaten nearly to death by Birmingham cops, all of it, a great majority of it reached S and NBC or affiliate radio stations and the pages of Life Magazine, the New York Times. In some was social media. In some sense, they very much had in mind how can we, how can we, this, the leaders thought, how can we best penetrate the whole of the American conscience? And they thought we have to use the media. There was real, again, there was real vir uh, virality uh, in, in all of those images. In the research and writing of the book, Paul, how much time did you spend in Birmingham? And had you been to Birmingham, Alabama before? Do you get a sense that, uh, that these events are still very much alive 60 years later in Birmingham, either within the black or the white community? I had a chance to spend a fair amount of time in Birmingham. I was somewhat limited because it was some of my research was happening during the pandemic. So it was hard to try to spend a lot of time there, but I was able to spend some time in the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And I was able to spend some time uh, at the Birmingham Public Library. You know, because you said you lived in Birmingham, I'll just sort of share my experience. I'm curious for your own. Uh, the Birmingham that I encountered in 2020 and 2021 was a city that uh, that that seemed to be integrated far more fully 
than say the Boston, Massachusetts I've lived in just a few years prior. I saw black people sitting along white people at, uh, at barbecue joints I went to. I saw a sort of multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, city. Someone who spent time there really only trying to understand the past that you could see the mark of demarcation and the ways in which the present was so vastly different than the past because of those past events. I'm curious though, because you lived there for your own experiences, because you, how long did you live there? I was there a couple of years in uh, 2008 to 2010. You've frozen, Paul. I'm Our not hearing you. Um, yeah, my experiences. Uh, I, I, I have to say, I, I lived, I, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts too. It, it didn't strike me that it Birmingham was any more racially integrated than uh, Boston, Massachusetts. But Boston, Massachusetts isn't exactly a a model for racial integration either, is it? Sonia and I moved from Dallas to Boston. We were told to stay away from certain neighborhoods in Boston, like South Boston, like Dorchester, uh, just because of the sort of tribalism of those neighborhoods in particular and the, the ways in which certain Irish Catholic families still presided there deep into the 21st century. Finally, Paul, let's go back to your own personal story. You began with that. You said that you uh, you 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 married a an African American woman. You have two. You have children, obviously, uh, of mixed race. How much has that experience changed how you think about all these civil rights history? For almost twenty years now, the head of a black household. Um, and uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, my life has changed fundamentally. My thinking has changed uh, fundamentally. With Birmingham as the absolute linchpin of the 20th century. 1863 and emancipation to 1963 and nothing changes. A hundred years of horrendous Jim Crow law. And then 10 weeks in the spring of 1963. And after that, the Kennedys who had been so opposed to civil rights legislation agreed to sponsor it. And then everything changes after that. Even though I'm not a native of Birmingham, even though Sonia, my wife grew up in Texas, we get it to Birmingham and to those deputies and Martin Luther King within this, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for what they did 60 years ago this spring. Our lives would not be possible today were it not for them. 